0: coronavirus complications for world sport. And I think decisions will have to be made about
1: um, if they're going to have to have the events without without audience, empty stadiums,
0: in other words. That's Dr. Jeffrey Engel, an industry-leading epidemiologist, today's guest on Around the Rings Radio. I'm your host, Ed Hula. It seems no aspect of life has been untouched by the influence of the COVID-19 pandemic. For the corner of the world we cover here at Around the Rings, the effects of corona have been acute, to use a bit of medical parlance. The Olympics in Tokyo, once set to begin this July, will now take place a year later, we hope. International tournaments by the federations have gone by the wayside, as well as other major sporting events, such as Wimbledon and the NBA and NHL seasons. The world championships in ice hockey were supposed to begin this week in Lausanne, Switzerland. They are now cancelled, with no hope of returning to Switzerland for at least a half a dozen years. International travel, once utterly commonplace among Olympic sports leaders, is truly grounded. Meetings that once took place in exotic destinations across the globe are now electronically conducted. And this weekend in Australia... The Australian Olympic Committee will hold its annual meeting, the first time for it to be held in a virtual mode. What really has to happen for things to go back to the way they were before? Or is sport about to be changed forever? How will the Olympics in 2021 in Tokyo and the Winter Olympics in 2022 in Beijing, how will they need to adapt to the post-corona world? Joining us today to try to answer some of these questions is Dr. Jeffrey Engel. An epidemiologist by specialty. He is the senior advisor for COVID-19 activities for the Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists. The council is based in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a professional association for epidemiologists at public health organizations across the U.S. For eight years, he was executive director of the council. Prior to that, director of public health for North Carolina and his medical degree is from Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to Around the Rings Radio, Dr. Jeffrey Engel. Thank you very much, and I'm glad to be with you today. Uh, for, first, we were all surprised as um, non-professionals in the medical field to see the, the spread, the impact of, of the coronavirus on sport. Totally unexpected three or four months ago, nobody would have anticipated anything like this happening. From from your vantage point as a, a professional in the field, did this come as a surprise as well? I would say yes, it did. Uh, particularly
1: the rapidity of how, how quickly this uh, exploded out of China. So we first heard about the disease uh, on December 31st, 2019, hence its name, COVID-19. And uh, within two months, uh, we had widespread disease in the United States. Um, We certainly had plans for pandemic that involved cancellation of mass gatherings, but I never saw it happening this
0: fast. And we never have had anything like this that that has caused cancellation of mass gatherings on a, on a global basis like this.
1: That's correct. Even during the H1N1 pandemic of 2009, um, we didn't come anywhere close to what we're experiencing now.
0: And after observing the way this virus and its rampage around the world has, has gone, what more do you think we, we, we know about it today?
1: I think there are several things we know about it. Um, One is that it it is extremely contagious uh, with transmission rates, particularly in indoor uh, crowded areas um, like conjugate living places, like unfortunately nursing homes and prisons and the like can spread very, very efficiently. And we're also learning more and more who's most vulnerable to severe complications. Um, including hospitalization, need for intensive care unit support, and uh, sadly, uh, death as well. So we're understanding those basic epidemiological principles very well now.
0: And there are other coronaviruses. What makes this one unlike others that, that we already know about?
1: Well, there are two uh, broad ones. Let me divide into a couple of buckets. One are there are about two or three strains of coronavirus that cause the common cold in humans. And we live with these viruses every year and common colds are common and mild infections that we we just tolerate. Uh, the, the other family are these uh, weird animal viruses that... Um, Attack people in really unusual situations. So we had SARS one that emerged in 2002, also in China, in Guangdong, down in the southern portion of the uh, of the country, and quickly spread worldwide. But the United States only experienced. Um, eight or nine cases of SARS-1, and it was containable easily because it wasn't that contagious. And then there's this Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome virus, MERS, which is another corona that came out of the Middle East from camels. And that too has not, has not been as uh, nearly as contagious as
0: um, SARS-2. But we're really worried about people-to-people contact, that kind of transmission media, if you will, for this, uh, for this illness, primarily? Yes,
1: primarily. This is a human-to-human transmission story. Um, there are some but very unusual cases of it being spread on surfaces, but even then, it's in indoor, crowded situations, but it's mainly a
0: human-to-human story. And that makes sport a, a high-risk activity for transmission of the virus. We have crowds in the stands in indoor arenas, also outdoor arenas, um, other crowded conditions uh, in venues for athletes. Um, is, is is sport, would you consider, a high-risk activity?
1: Um, well, I think you articulated it well um, in in prolonged in particularly indoor, um, it, it is risk, and we're looking not just at the competition, but all locker rooms and associated activities. Um, and then there are sports that involve much more uh, close contact between people. Um, the, the obviously the contact sports. Uh, mm. But even those that are less contact involve very close uh, person-to-person contact. I, I, I will say that outdoor activities uh, would be less risky because we do know that the virus is act- inactivated quickly by sunlight. So that is one thing going for us.
0: Yeah. Um, you, you've seen uh, IOC President Thomas Box. Letter he wrote a couple of weeks ago about the Olympics and Corona, and uh, quite a quite a lengthy uh, list of observations that he made there. Um, he is um, very optimistic about the Olympics being a a path towards uh, renewal and rebirth after fighting the coronavirus, with the games now scheduled for July 2021. Do you think it's wishful thinking for the IOC president for the IOC to still be talking about an Olympics a year from now in Japan?
1: Uh, no, I don't. I think there are several practical things that could happen that could make the games happen uh, safely. Um, if I could talk about three of them. Um, one, obviously, um, are new developments with medications. So there's a, clinical trials that are ongoing and they look very promising, um, and uh, medications can be brought to bear on the market globally, very quickly, uh, if they're safe and effective. Um, second is, is a vaccine. Uh, this also will be, once we have a good choice, that'll be ramped up very quickly, um, as well globally. Um, I will say though that the vaccine may not be ready by next summer. Um, the, these trials take a lot longer than than drug trials do. And then finally, I think there are some what I would call non medical interventions that we could think about that could have the games take place, uh, including um, quarantine. Quarantining uh, Olympic teams uh, two weeks prior to the games so that they are uh, you know socially distanced from the rest of the population and um, not exposed and therefore could be deemed uninfected um, and ready to go to, uh, to the games that would be something that every nation would have to analyze and carefully. Um, decide whether or not it's practical, and I would assume sign some kind of agreement that, the, that they're doing this. And then offer uh, widespread testing also um, to make sure that uh, participants indeed are, are, are not infected. And then last on this non-medical front, we do have emerging antibody tests that are coming out and we're hopeful that uh, some of these antibodies will show to be protective from reinfection so many people may be able to get an antibody test as long as it's validated and uh, be able to uh, attend these events without any risk
0: one of the uh, one of the aspects of the Olympics for the Olympians is life in the Olympic village, which uh, can be a crowded place. Uh, sometimes they put four, five, six or more athletes in a suite of apartments. This is This a sort of surroundings, living quarters that uh, are, are problematic. Does the Olympics need to look at changing the way uh, Olympians are, are housed during the games?
1: Yes, um, that's a good point, and certainly five or six um, people in a dorm-like situation would be high risk, Um, and I think this could be mitigated by um, better separation, um, private or semi-private rooms, um, which would, I'm sure would involve hoteling of one variety or another. Uh, but the other solution is what I mentioned earlier is to have safe cohorts uh, designed again. If um, these athletes and their uh, support staff can be adequately social distanced uh, in that two week quarantine period before the games, I think, um, you know, an Olympic village, um, could be had safely, as long as, again, we could guarantee um, that that quarantine took place.
0: And what about the, the the presence of crowds? You know, another another aspect of the Olympics that, that draws attention and draws people are the crowds, people coming into the venues to um, other events around the Olympics. Um, is that going to be something that has to be looked at to change? Can we have crowded stadiums and arenas without fear of people getting ill? Yes. So, so
1: far we spoke about just the athletes and their support staff. And now the other big question is uh, the crowds. Uh, I'm just picturing those opening games at the Summer Olympics and how beautiful and gorgeous they are. And a stadium full of 100,000 people watching them. <clears throat> that would definitely have to be curtailed depending on the uh, international situation with uh, COVID-19 next summer. So um, particularly with people coming in from all over the world. Um, and I think decisions will have to be made about um, if they're going to have to have the events without, um, without audience empty stadiums in other words. Um, I do know that some athletic events are occurring now with that situation and I think that's going to be the fundamental decision that will have to be made as we approach summer 2021. So we might be able to guarantee or at least to a certain degree guarantee uh, athlete safety. We may not be able to guarantee crowd safety um, and it wouldn't be good for the world again with um you know, p- potentially hundreds of thousands of people traveling internationally to watch the games, then returning back to their countries, and perhaps rekindling an epidemic.
0: Just playing around with statistics in a dangerous way, if there are, are say, 7 or 8 million ticketed tickets to the Olympics, people holding these tickets, there's 10,500 athletes. Using a certain percentage of the general population that might come down with the coronavirus among seven or eight million ticket holders, among ten thousand five hundred athletes and a few thousand more officials, won't won't statistically be there be a reasonable chance that there are are people carrying coronavirus amongst amongst these numbers? Absolutely. Um, particularly
1: amongst the millions. Um, I think we have better control and better probabilities with the thousands in terms of the athletes and the related officials um, with those uh, non-medical possibilities that I discussed, like quarantine, quarantining and even serologic testing that may be available by then. But you're absolutely right. The millions of fans... Um, even a year from now may be impossible to regulate. And I think, like I said earlier, a
0: decision will have to be made about having the competition with empty stadiums. And you think that may be the biggest biggest step, the most uh, impactful uh, measure that could be taken to uh, keep uh, keep the Tokyo Olympics safe? Yes,
1: and to make sure that they actually occur. So uh, 2021, um, if there's no vaccine, if there's still, you know, worldwide outbreaks occurring, um, uh,
0: that's going to be the safest decision. And one of the problems right now for athletes uh, preparing for the Olympics is being able to go train to be able to take part in the routines that they, they follow to uh, make themselves ready for, ready for the Olympics. Um, that's going to require um, being able to travel between now and next year. Um, other conditions have to take place to ensure that they can, can train safely. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it, the complications of this just are, are staggering everywhere you turn. What has to happen for an Olympics to to take place? Um, you know, what about you know safe training conditions for athletes, safe travel for athletes in the in the months ahead of an Olympic Games? That's got to open up as well.
1: Oh, well, you're absolutely right. So particularly regional competitions. Um- between countries, um, just thinking about soccer, for example, and what has to happen for that to occur before the games. Um, all of these are at risk and it, it may be, uh, I'm trying to be optimistic here, Ed, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm hoping that um, Olympic committees uh, at the national level will, will be innovative um, and also take uh, not some safety risks, but more economic risks and spend some money on chartered flights and uh, safe um, quarters when they get their athletes into um the new location where where there may be in a regional competition internationally um and then having training facilities that are safe i think uh again through innovation um i think these can be designed uh you know staggered workout schedules for example um Again, the hope that uh, serologic testing will be available soon to identify those people who were infected and are now not as high risk. Um,
0: other things like this could be um, uh, implemented. Yeah, we're talking today with Dr. Jeffrey Engel, an epidemiologist senior advisor on COVID-19 for the Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists. Uh, the Winter Olympics are coming in 2022 in Beijing, uh, some six, seven months after their winter, the Summer Games are held in Japan. Uh, should there be worries about athletes and officials and others traveling to Beijing for, for the Winter Olympic Games? Anything to be concerned about there?
1: Well, now we're going uh, two years ahead, and I think it's much more likely that we'll have a a safe and effective vaccine. So if I look into my crystal ball and I will put the vaccine on the table as being um, the ultimate uh, neutralizer and safe highway for um, games in in Beijing in 2022. The other thing I might say, and I'm getting into territory that's not really my subject matter, but it's certainly led to some um, interesting observations epidemiologically, is that uh, nations that have strong central governments are certainly able to take hold of uh, control matters in a much more direct fashion um, than countries with distributed authorities like the United States and perhaps uh, the European union. Um, And I'm not saying, you know, it's a police state, um, but I will say that they were able to clamp down in Hubei province in Wuhan very effectively with a massive workforce to do the case investigation and contact tracing that was necessary to, quench the, uh, the epidemic in Wuhan
0: where it started. And so I yeah I we think, saw the video of people being dragged out of their apartments, for example. Yeah, the, uh, what, in,
1: it, which is why I'm hesitating, you know, that this, is, this can be extreme, but um, I, I'll just put it out there as an observation, maybe end it there because I don't want to get too much out of my lane
0: and, on uh, politics. Yeah, and while we're talking about what governments can do here in the United States and in other governments around the world, uh, there's relaxation of the stay-at-home, stay at the quarantine uh, restrictions, guidelines of the past couple of months. Um, is, is, is it coming off too early in the United States?
1: Well, the U.S. is an interesting governance because we have this odd confederacy of the states and the federal government. And... Um it's going to be a big national experiment. Um, we're seeing states that are um, loosening and reopening earlier than others, and uh, time will tell because the data is coming in. We have good metrics to monitor, and, uh, and we'll see. Maybe um, some states, what they've opted to do is open early or earlier than other states and give people the choices on uh, what risks they want to encounter in their daily lives while other states have been much more um, restrictive and conservative in their approaches to reopening. Um, But, you know, it's a matter of life and death. It's not just a matter of um, getting the economy going again. And uh, that's just been a very difficult balance with uh, with this pandemic.
0: And people believe that a return to normalcy would also mean a return to sports like baseball, getting the major league baseball season underway. Whether the professional football season will be able to start up on schedule. Um, uh, what what has to happen for these sports to get professional sports to, to get underway in the United States? Yes, so I
1: think um, actually the Reopening America Again guidelines are reasonable ones that are are posted on the web now, and governors are implementing them to varying degrees across the country. Um, But I think if we show clear downward trends in all of these metrics that are widely available now um, for the next, um, say, month, Um, So in my state, North Carolina, our governor is open things up as early as June 15th uh, based on that scaled-faced approach um, if the metrics um, continue to be favorable. These metrics involve both population monitoring and healthcare institution monitoring, of course, because we don't want to overwhelm hospitals, Uh, but we also want to make sure that um, that the disease is not popping up again. Um, So um, optimistically, June 15th um, might be a day to look at for um, baseball starting again.
0: Now now you're suggesting the Olympics look at having events in Tokyo next year without spectators. Do the professional sports need to go the same way as they... Open their seasons in the United States. Empty stadiums, is that the way to go?
1: Well, that would certainly be the, uh, the safest approach, but I think you know um, they might be able to sell fewer tickets um, and socially distance people. Um, that would probably be hard to monitor though, but some of these stadiums are so large um, that might be something that they can consider. And again, um, We're looking at the outdoor stadiums where the risk of transmission would be a lot lower. Um, So I would say that um, a graduated approach may be possible if it can be controlled. For example, today, uh, grocery stores, for example, are limiting the number of people that enter the store by putting these six foot markings outside their door and only letting people in as people exit the other direction so that you can still do your grocery shopping and maintain a safe social distance. Perhaps the same thing can be done at the turnstiles
0: and ticket sales with um, large sporting events. Yeah, things are certainly certainly changing. What role should athletes play in demanding safe conditions for their training and competition? You know, do they have a a right to speak out and uh, and say things don't seem right if they are not comfortable with their working conditions, with their field of play, competition, uh, uh, facilities?
1: Well, sure. I think any uh, workforce has uh, the right to speak out um, if they feel that they are uh, working in unsafe conditions, and um, I hope there would be. Uh, collective voices emerging either among players unions or the like Um, but absolutely i think they have a voice and can be the loudest advocate
0: and the national olympic committees around the world should pay attention to what their athletes are saying what uh what their concerns are
1: Oh, I think so, um, and, and particularly a voice at the table as they begin to formulate plans for um, 2021. Um, you could do it in many ways. Um, sometimes they they may have appointed representatives, but we in public health we do it through community engage, engagement. But in in this setting, you would want to. Have advocacy and engagement with the um, with the athletes themselves in a in a very formal and systematic way, and not give them
0: lip service. You know, they'd have they'd have an equal equal chair at the table. Uh, one of the striking uh, aspects of change for people involved with the Olympics and world sport has been the absence of, of travel. Um, people used to go here and there on a moment's notice be going one city one day another city another day for meetings events that sort of thing that's just all stopped what has to happen do you think for travel to become more commonplace again
1: well that's a really good question um, because we're looking at uh, mainly airports and um, getting uh, airlines um, to be Declared safe is going to it's going to take some time. Um, certainly, um, screenings can be done before boarding, and airline companies, at least the United States, have authority to not allow anyone to board who they feel is not fit for air travel um unfortunately the airlines don't want to be put in the, that position and would rather have somebody else do it that is health screenings so i think as we phase back into uh normal world travel um screenings of passengers will be important um that's we do know that people can be minimally symptomatic or have no symptoms and still have covid or be incubating covid and They could um, get sick while particularly on a long haul flight uh, halfway around the world. So these things will happen. Um, The other thing we could do is mandate um, respiratory masks be worn by passengers because we do know that masks can prevent germs spreading to others. it, they're not good at preventing you from acquiring germs, but if you talk or cough or sneeze and have a mask on, it may um, reduce transmission to others. So yeah, I think there are these various steps in mitigation that we're going to see as uh, airlines uh, ramp up again. Um, and then ultimately people are going to make their own decisions on on um, what risks they see and how vulnerable they are, particularly um, if you're older, have other under underlying health conditions. I think people like that will probably delay
0: flying for perhaps several years. Can can a- airlines continue with the same design they have for cabins? Is there has to be a different approach to what flying in an airplane is like? as we look towards the future here, or can they just keep on the way the cabins are set up right now? Yes, I,
1: I really don't think that social distancing is possible in a flying tube. An airplane is basically a, this long fuselage um, that flies um that distancing people by um making the seats less far apart I'm, uh, less close together would would really mitigate um because you're indoors for so long um the air is recirculated or at least a portion of it is even though it's uh filtered um you're still sitting near a person um, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine what a, you know, one of these carriers that currently holds, say, 150 seats, if it went down to 75 seats, that, that would be any safer um, because you'd still be very close to a person for a prolonged flight. So I don't see any fundamental engineering designs on the horizon.
0: So that remains uh, an ongoing risk it would be for athletes, officials, others having to make international travel for the Olympics and other sporting events in the, in the years ahead here. I mean, that is, it is a, a risk, something that uh, people are going to have to consider and weigh when they make their plans. Yes, and I think
1: the best mitigation strategy would be a chartered flight where um, you're you you know using that quarantine measure that I discussed earlier in our interview
0: controlling the environment the best as you can um, assuming the the coronavirus we're dealing with now is under c- control by by next year. Is there a threat from other new viruses um, are there other illnesses that we, we don't know about, we don't know yet, that uh, that could emerge? And, and how do sport plan for this sort of thing?
1: Yes, they're always out there. They're always lurking. And, you know, they're almost always from animals. Um, and uh, there are any number of threats out there um, that we worry about. Um, one of my biggest fears are these mosquito-borne viruses that keep popping up mosquitoes are everywhere um so we had zika virus a couple of years ago but dengue has been around for years and there are several equatorial countries that have ongoing dengue outbreaks all the time um and mosquitoes can travel on airplanes too so um that to me is one of the biggest threats are mosquito-borne uh, viral infections um and then who who would have thought that some weird bat virus would contaminate a food market in wuhan china and cause COVID 19 you know so i think these things can come out of anywhere
0: do do big events like the olympics uh the world cup uh professional sports leagues need to plan more for pandemics and these kinds of uh medical crises?
1: Yes, they do. Plans never hurt. Um, the problem is it's difficult to project the scenarios um, and then also to exercise those plans, at least in limited ways, to see if they're actually feasible to implement. Um, but well, I think the globe has the, the worst case scenario right now with COVID-19, so I think we have a lot to learn, many lessons learned that can be incorporated into good planning uh, for the future from, from this event. Um, again, you know, um, preventing transmission of a community respiratory virus when there are no medical countermeasures is very challenging.
0: Back to the Olympics and Tokyo in 2021, Uh, there's talk uh, among some experts in Japan and other places that if there's no vaccine, there can be no Olympics in in Tokyo next year. Is uh, is, Is that an accurate position to take? I
1: think that's one position to take. Um, and may be the best business decision, too, because some of these other measures that I talked about uh, in mitigation that are non-medical, non-vaccine, may not be economically feasible.
0: Like having empty stadiums when you're expecting 20 or 30 percent of your revenue to come from ticket sales.
1: Correct. Or how, what would the cost be of guaranteeing a two-week quarantine of your athletes and all the extra costs needed for training and competition before the
0: games. Or perhaps remodeling an already constructed Olympic village to make it uh, less of a, a risk, uh, less of a risk in that environment. Correct. But you still have some optimism that we can have and Olympic Games in 2021. Without a vaccine, yes.
1: I'm cautiously optimistic. I think there are ways to do it that are medically safe. Uh, The question is, will there
0: be global political will, and is it economically feasible? Jeffrey Angle, MD, has been our guest on today's edition of Around the Rings Radio. He's a senior advisor on COVID-19, for the Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists, a professional association based in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Engel, thank you for joining us, and we hope we can have you back again. As the story develops, it is far from over. Thanks for being with us on this edition of Around the Rings Radio. I'm your host, Ed Hula. Please stay calm and stay safe. For more than 25 years, your best source of news about the Olympics is AroundTheRings.com.